Hello and welcome to this week's Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined by Madeline Davies, our Deputy News and Features Editor, and Hattie Williams, our Senior Reporter. On this week's podcast, we'll be talking about cathedrals and the review into their governance, which has been published this week, which is calling for some radical changes. We'll also be talking about the church's crisis over young people, in particular, why people left the church in their teens and why they returned or didn't. If you don't already subscribe, check out our subscription offer, 10 issues of the Church Times for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk, subscribe to find out more. First, serious governance mistakes have been made at cathedrals and legislative change is needed to correct inadequacies in their regulation. These are the conclusions of a draft report by the Cathedral's Working Group, which has just been published. Madeline's been following the story closely. Madeline, what prompted this review? So this review was commissioned after there was um, Episcopal visitation at Peterborough Cathedral, um, where there'd been problems um, including a cash flow crisis, which meant that some of the staff were in danger of not being paid. Um, so the bishop there um, organised this visitation. Um, one of his conclusions was that he felt that there were insufficient safeguards in place in the regulation of cathedrals, saying that the cathedral's measure was insufficient. So the Bishop of Stepney, the Right Reverend Adrian Newman, was um, appointed to chair this review. And Bishop Newman is a former Dean of Rochester, isn't he? So he's he's been on both sides of the kind of Bishop-Dean divide, as it were. Yeah, he actually talks in the foreword to the review about how, as a parish priest, um, he perhaps underestimated cathedrals, and it was when he became a Dean um, that he really appreciated the gift that they are to the church. And what are some of the sort of headline recommendations? We talk, talk about governance, that, that's, a, that's a big issue, something that he, his review said needed dealing with. I guess the central recommendation is that the Dean and Chapter will remain the main governing body, um, but there's an idea that non-executive members um, should outnumber the Dean and Chapter and that there will be um, several sort of lay people um, on this governance body, including a lay person as vice chair who would be appointed by the bishop. Um, and I think what they would like to do um, is really kind of improve some of the expertise on that governing body, um, particularly kind of around finance. So they're saying bring in people who've got some experience in quote-unquote the real world. Yeah, one of the um, the challenges which the Dean of St Paul's, Dr David Ison, brought up um, when I interviewed him earlier this week was really around um, how it can be quite challenging to find those non-exec members. There's also um, a question around being able to recruit cathedral staff that have this kind of expertise, particularly when they're probably um, competing with some secular jobs where the salary would be much higher. Um, so I think there is a real um, challenge for cathedrals in terms of actually finding those people who can take on these roles. Um, one of the findings of the report was that actually getting financial expertise is really expensive. So if you're embarking on a big um, project and you might want to do that due diligence and get some expertise there, um, that does come at a cost. Mm. And you mentioned Dean Ison. How have, how have the deans and, and other senior cathedral clergy been reacting to this? report? So Dr Ison was um, generally very positive about it. He made the point, which is also stressed in the report, that there's already been some improvements since the visitation mm. and he feels that sort of healing has taken place. There was probably um, sort of feelings were sort of quite heightened in the wake of that visitation in terms of relationships really between deans and bishops maybe. And he said, you know, we, we need to work together, um, which is really one of the central conclusions of the report. I would say that um, the Dean of Litchfield, who chairs the Association of English cathedrals, um, possibly a bit more circumspect about his reaction. He talks about how there might be misgivings about the bureaucracy of coming under the Charity Commission. 
and also kind of um, reiterating comments that he's made before um, about the fact that sort of a degree of independence for the cathedrals is quite important. And then Bishop Adrian Newman writes in the Church Times this week about occasions when relationships between cathedral and diocese and bishop and dean have broken down. Do we know how mm. kind of widespread that is or how much of a problem that can be? Yeah, so that's something which I put to both of the deans that I interviewed. Does it actually just come down to a personality clash, which is something mm. which no amount of regulation can really deal with? Or is there actually something kind of inherent in the structures that gives rise to those tensions? Um, and I think um, to a certain extent the latter is true. I think... Um, that you know the fact that the bishop is the visitor and potentially sort of comes in um sort of as a last resort with this um visitation you know the public um can then see the findings and you know that that can sort of cause difficulties in relationships um and i think the report does have some really positive things to say about um a more kind of cooperative approach and kind of seeing mission as something where you can partner between cathedral and diocese there is um, a really interesting forward from Adrian Newman to the report, which I would recommend that people read because it's full of praise for cathedrals, actually. There's a lot of positive comments in there, um, including kind of this suggestion that we need to do more ecclesiology, actually exploring the place of cathedrals and their relationships with the rest of the church and suggesting maybe that's a bit of um, an under-explored topic. Mm. Does it explore sort of the difference between cathedrals and obviously some are older than others, some um, are more financially comfortable? Does it kind of explore that difference or not really? Um, so I think it, it does acknowledge and, and other reports have acknowledged as well that um, cathedrals, yeah, they can command different levels of support perhaps and have different degrees of attraction in terms of tourism and visitors. And it, it might be easier for one to charge quite a high entrance fee than another. Um, so I think it, it does allude to that. Um, and also the fact that, um, you know, having access to um, heritage lottery fund um, money is is good, but it's important not to kind of overextend yourself and, um, you know, start work on a project where you don't actually have all the funding committed yet. So perhaps suggesting a, a degree of slightly more caution. The Church of England in general is putting quite a lot of effort into um, finding new ways of, of financing churches and cathedrals. Um, we've also got a story in this week um, about cathedrals introducing uh, contactless payment points. So instead of putting cash into a box, you're uh, putting your contactless payment card as you would uh, in the shop um, to buy your groceries or anything else these mm. days. And just to kind of accommodate for, for tourists and visitors who, you know, you never have any cash. And actually, well, an early trials suggest that that's working. And we also know of cathedrals who, who are quite commercial in letting out their space to companies and other groups for dinners and for concerts. I think a sort of an ongoing um, debate which we've covered is obviously this question of whether you are appointed to these senior positions, you know, as a theologian, as mm. a pastor, as a shepherd, or as somebody with expertise in finance and management and I guess that question of whether they're kind of mutually exclusive and which one's more important and I think that's probably a conversation that will continue and there's you know a lot of suggestion that's that you know those two things can go together um, but certainly our leader raises questions about in this new climate would it be more difficult to appoint a dean who didn't have any kind of experience in those areas but you know was an amazing theologian um, or pastor or evangelist. Next, it's part two of our special series on the church's crisis over young people. We've been getting a lot of feedback on social media, haven't we, about the um, features last week. 
Um, this week, we profile people who left the church in their teens, some of whom returned later in life and some of whom have not. You're just looking at this, are there any sort of common reasons why people left the church in their teens? I think one of the things that comes out is that um, obviously everyone has a unique story. And I think one of the things that will probably take away from it is there's no one way in which we're going to keep teenagers in church. And there are some very personal reasons why people left. Um, so, you know, some people talk about, I guess, um, a degree of peer pressure or not wanting to be unusual. And that will be even more true probably for teenagers today, where probably the percentage that go to church is even lower than when some of these people were writing. And I guess, to be honest, this kind of um, comment about church being boring um, comes out as well. And I think also this kind of area around being free to ask questions. So we've got a very long piece um, from a guy, Mike, mm. um, who talks about kind of discovering things about science, um, which didn't really match up with what he was being taught um, at his Sunday school. And increasingly, you know, having doubts and questions, which instead of, you know, feeling free to explore them at church, they were very much shut down. And I think that's definitely something which we need to look at. Yeah, he seems to say that he, he got to ask the questions, but people weren't necessarily being very open in their answers. I felt quite sad reading it because working at the Church Times, I know that there are amazing apologists out there. And, you know, mm. we have bishops who have PhDs in science, in physics, in history, who, you know... I'm sure had they been around in that church would have taken a very different approach um, and would have been able to um, explain why these things are not kind of mutually exclusive. Mm. Um, but it's, it's certainly not, um, not an unusual experience, I think. I, I know of other people who felt that when they've grown up and have had questions and things which didn't really add up, they didn't feel free or weren't encouraged to really push mm. those questions and see where they took them. I found interesting um, Mike's relationship with his family as well. He says, my family's not confrontational. The idea of sitting down and telling my parents I didn't believe never entered my head. So he just carried on singing the hymns, going through the motions. I wonder how common an experience that was where perhaps he feared hurting his parents who were kind of committed Christians that... So yeah, there's um, an, another story from a guy, John, um, of a similar age, and he talks about how he was really going to church and getting confirmed to make his mum happy. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it took a lot to kind of confess that he didn't want to go anymore. Um, so although I think we can have this idea that there's this big clash and, and parents sort of dragging teenagers to church and it's a real cause of tension, some of the things that come out from this is actually that teenagers didn't want to hurt their parents um, and it actually took quite a lot to stop going. Mm. So it wasn't just some teenage rebellion where they were saying, I'm throwing away everything my parents do. Yeah, exactly. I found Sophia really interesting. Um, someone who'd, who'd grown up going to church and gone away and then come back to it initially because there was a church with a very good C of E school, which I think we've talked about in the past. Mm. The, um, but interestingly, even though the, her son's not going to that school, they've carried on going to the church, partly because the vicar was made such a huge effort dropped around when, when she had postnatal depression and you just see how again the parish mm. link and that relationship that can be built yeah um, it, it actually made me think of when I visited Shenfield recently and mm. I learned there that there's a very good church school and you know it'd be very easy to say oh well these people are just coming in to avoid school fees and they want to get into the school and I think there's some real encouragement in that story for many of our readers who probably also know that some people are there to get into the school that actually that is a real opportunity and because the priest in that instance built up a relationship with that family they're now coming even though their son doesn't mm. go to the school so not to kind of underestimate the potential of those encounters. Do you think it's more likely that if teenagers have been to church 
through sort of growing up with church as it were they're, they're much more likely to to return to it later rather than just kind of going in cold turkey having never been yeah so um one of the things which david voas wrote about last week was this idea that yeah that the teenage years are quite crucial and basically if you're not in church in your early 20s it's quite unlikely that you will um return um and i think we also see when we look at church plant statistics that many of the people who go to church plants aren't entirely new to the Christian faith. They might have lapsed, you might say, or might have drifted or not going to church as much, but there is some kind of foundation there to which they're returning. We've got a piece in this week about those kind of church plants and those new ventures. It's a a piece of research from the church army uh, suggesting that actually mission with young people is not as difficult um, as churches make out. And actually, if you have a very simple idea, for example, um, there's a, a church in Essex called the DNA Football Church and they have breakfast together on a Saturday and then they uh, kind of worship and fellowship and then they play a, a seven-a-side game. And I think simple things like that um, that don't necessarily uh, require you to be a Christian to go can actually, as you say, get, get your foot in the door and actually get people interested and, and, mm-hmm. and, and taking part. And I think the sense of community um, was actually the most positive thing about some of these uh, newer mission ventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's actually um, a teenager, Sam, who's going to be writing one of our teenagers' perspectives in um, future editions as we continue this series. And he actually gives the example of a football club um, at his church, which has then led to some of those um, young guys joining the church. Um, but we'll also be looking at uh, much more um, traditional approaches. So we've got um, one young guy who will be writing about how it was actually the prayer book um, that was his kind of gateway into the church. Um, And so I think what we're trying to do is kind of have a a spread of examples um, and perhaps what comes out of this feature around young people leaving is that there really will be no one method which draws people back in. We do hope readers are enjoying the New Look Church Times. Um, Which parts of the New Look Church Times stood out for you guys this week? Um, We've actually got quite an interesting uh, review of uh, the latest U2 album, um, just having a look at some of the lyrics in some of their songs. In one of their songs called American Soul, they actually kind of, uh, there's a little play on the Beatitudes, um, which uh, our critic Peter Barrett looks into. So just something a little different for our readers. Um, This week I really um, enjoyed interviewing a Roman Catholic priest from the Diocese of Nyeri in Kenya, Father Peterson Ndegwa. Um, And he um, talked really movingly about how the church is tackling the stigma around mental ill health. Um, So there's a huge um, fear of mental health in Kenya um, and people might attribute it to um, spiritual problems, to witchcraft, to possession. And it's just really encouraging to hear that the church is the one who is advocating um, treatment, um, medication where necessary. And he talked about how um, the church has a very strong and credible voice, um, which I think is very true in lots of countries um, and in lots of areas, um, but a very uplifting story. We've got five pages of Lent books this week. I really enjoyed a review by John Arnold of Luther's Gospel, Reimagining the World by the Bishop of Kensington, Graham Tomlin. He was interviewed on the podcast about another of his books called Bound to be Free um, a couple of weeks ago. Very nice ending to the review where John Arnold writes, there is something to be said for theologians being bishops and bishops being theologians after all. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. 
go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sought After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.